Hey, look at that. Welcome, Mary Beth. How are you? Nice to see you. Good, thank you. Nice to see you as well. We've got the buzzing, Derek, happening, just FYI. Thank you, Emory. Emily. <laughs> so, Mary Beth, we went around earlier and uh, everybody gave about a five-minute explanation of what they did last Tuesday, just in case you're interested. I, I think I went and listened to live music, maybe. Was it raining? I don't know. <laughs> was it raining? It was raining every day. It no, would take that me day, did... five minutes to remember, so I missed everyone. How about that? <laughs> there you go. You were, That's what you did. <laughs> oh, did you want me to, did you want me to fill time? Who's Phil? <laughs> He's, he's filling your, pulling your leg, Mary Beth. None of us could remember what we did last week. Oh, oh so we all did the same thing. <laughs> in order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps in the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Good thing we're recording for them, right? We'll quiz them later. Hey, so uh, as far as I can tell, we're doing this book called uh, The Lion of Speech, or Lion of Speech, The Life of Mipam Rinpoche, with Mipam's Lion's Roar on the Buddha Nature, and so forth. And uh, we're going through the Lion's Roar on Buddha Nature text, and uh, we're on page 166 which is the meaning of the third line of the stanza because they have potential for enlightenment and the stanza just to refresh our drain our memory is on page 149 because the kaya of perfect buddhahood radiates because in suchness there is no division and because they have potential for enlightenment all beings have at all times but a essence and it's from the Uttara Tantra, this, the uh, supreme continuity, and it's by Maitreya, and it's sort of a core stanza for the tradition that endeavors to bring together the teachings on emptiness of the second turning and the teachings on Buddha nature of the third turning. So, because they have potential for enlightenment. Do you think that's sort of a tautology? Like they have Buddha nature because they have Buddha nature? 
Any thoughts on that? Because they have potential for enlightenment, therefore they have Buddha nature, which is the potential for enlightenment. Well, let's see what Mr. Mipom has to say on this naughty subject. The meaning of these words is that all sentient beings have a potential thanks to which. What a cool phrase. <laughs> you don't find that in Tibetan often. Thanks to which. Thanks to which they are able to attain Buddhahood. Let us give thanks for that potential due to which they are able to attain Buddhahood. It is established that adventitious defilements are, by definition, removable. Another tautology, if they're adventitious, they're removable, right? So, you know, the question is, are there, are there defilements that are not adventitious? You know, to challenge, to play uh, devil's something, gambit? Um, advocate. Advocate. There you go. Lobbying. Lobbying on behalf of the devil. Um, it is established that adventitious defilements are, by definition, removable, and that the Dharmakaya, primordially endowed with the qualities of enlightenment, is present in all sentient beings without distinction. So he's sort of, I think, summarizing the last couple of points. And uh, of that stanza, conversely, the presence in beings of this potential for enlightenment means that they have the Buddha essence. So he's very much implying that the Buddha essence is not the potential for enlightenment, right? Do, do you get that feeling? Okay, good. Um, for it is present at the time of Buddhahood itself. And since the Dharmakaya of the Buddha is uncompounded, there can be no qualitative variation in it in terms of good or bad before or after, i.e. before or after defilements are removed. Hey Chris, welcome. So, um, he's saying, he's using the logic that, well, Buddha nature, Buddhahood, um, uh, possesses Enlightenment, sort of, he says, literally, he says, conversely, the presence in beings of this potential for enlightenment means that they have Buddha essence, for it is present at the time of Buddhahood itself. It referring, I think, to the potential for enlightenment. I, I, I was reading it as that the Buddha essence is present at the time of Buddhahood. And therefore, and since it couldn't have changed, therefore, it was there all along. Yeah, and why do you need a potential for something if you if you already have it? Have it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so good uh, good point by Cynthia. Let's let's read it that way. And, I ask one uh, more question about this line, which is, what is the conversely um, referring back to? Yeah. yeah, so uh, it implies that the last sentence had a logical syllogism that went from like A to B to C, and now he's going to go from because of C there and B, therefore there must be A. Got it. So it's not disagreeing, it's just doing it in the reverse order. Right, right. Okay. 
yeah, conversely, maybe is uh, a little bit of an odd, implies. Uh, anyway, so let's say for it, Buddha essence is present at the time of Buddhahood itself. And since the Dharmakaya, the Buddha, is uncompounded, there can be no qualitative variation in it in terms of good or bad, and most importantly, before or after. So there seems to be an equivalence between uh, the Dharmakaya of the Buddha and the Buddha essence. So, the, so uh, reading it uh, Cynthia's way, that implies that the Buddha potential or the potential for enlightenment must be there from the beginning without change because the Buddha essence is there in the in the state of Buddhahood and Buddha essence and Buddhahood and Dharmakaya don't change. The third of the great reasons given in the stanza from the Uttara Tantra by which one understands that a result is generated from a cause by which one understands that a result is generated from a cause constitutes the argument of efficient causation. Interesting that he's categorizing this, you know, he's sort of like labeling this line of the stanza as a certain type of logical reasoning or um, certain type of argument. Did he do that for the other two lines? No, it doesn't seem to have done that for the other two lines. But okay, so this line is using the logical reasoning of efficient causation. Nevertheless, owing to the crucial fact that no change occurs in the Buddha potential, that is dharmata or suchness, this is not just a matter of deducing a result from the simple presence of a cause. When the result is gained, no change occurs within the nature of the Buddha potential. So, what's the cause in this situation that he's talking about? The removal of defilements? Mm, no? Any other possible causes? I'm guessing it's the Buddha potential is the cause, and that the result is Dharmakaya? Buddhahood? Because uh, this whole part of the text revolves around the reasoning of since there is uh, that uh, asserting that there is Buddha nature because there is Buddha potential. Well, let's go a little bit further and then I'll interject some thing that might be going on. Let's see. When the result is gained, no change occurs within the nature of the Buddha potential. It is not improved when enlightenment happens, nor is it worse beforehand. Moreover, however long adventitious obscurations are present, it is always possible for them to be removed, and therefore the potential is never deprived of the capacity for enlightenment. No matter how long it takes, or no matter how defiled, 
one is, it's always possible. These are, therefore, three arguments that prove that all beings possess the Tathagata essence, a conclusion that derives from the perfect path of reasoning based on the power of objective fact. So he seems to be summarizing and, and uh, um, shifting from this the uh, explanation of this third reasoning to just a summarization. And, um, you know, one of the things that I think is going on in this third reasoning that's not brought out well by this translation. Interesting. Well, let's look at at uh, Buddha potential in the. There is a glossary, right? No, no, there's no glossary. Hmm. See, in uh, other texts that discuss this, Buddha potential is a translation of the term in Sanskrit, gotra, G-O-T-R-A, whereas Buddha nature is either is usually Tathagata Garbha, sometimes Sugata Garbha, but generally Tathagata Garbha, essence of thus gone, of the thus gone one. And gotra is um, a term that means family, clan, or lineage, or, um, yeah, those, those words. And um, it's like uh, saying that somebody is Italian and... Uh, um, and therefore has the potential for being a member of the Mafia. <laughs> Just to use a really bad stereotype. Um, that uh, beings each have a certain lineage or um, um, it's almost like genus or species in terms of the um, classification of of uh, sentient beings and um, this this is this is discussed in distinction to some of the earlier texts of the Mahayana and also the Hinayana well I shouldn't say Hinayana but the sutras attributed to the Buddha that are preserved in the Pali Canon and uh, different recensions of those sutras. Uh, you know, Pali Canon, Pali is a language and uh, that same set of sutras pretty much exists in Thai language and Burmese and Cambodian. Uh, bless you. And probably some other languages. So there's this set of teachings attributed to the Buddha that appears early on in the historical record and is supposedly what was recited at the uh, after the Buddha's Parinirvana at the First Council and then was uh, codified by putting in writing a few hundred years later. And in that set of teachings, there's uh, 
numerous references to the Bodhisattva, and they are generally all referring to the Buddha in his previous lives as a Bodhisattva, as an aspiring, as somebody aspiring to be the Buddha. And they, uh, various sutras uh, relate when the Buddha gave rise to bodhicitta and the aspiration to become a Buddha in distant aeons past and with which, um, in, in the company of which Buddhas, they did it, he did that. And one of the more famous ones is um, a Buddha named Dipankara. And um, it, it's, it's fairly clear in those sutras that a Buddha is a rather unusual individual in the scheme of things, and that uh, not everybody can become a Buddha. There's one Buddha every many, many aeons, and that others um, can become enlightened in this, in this uh, type of enlightenment of a Pratyeka Buddha or an Arhat and enter into Parinirvana and uh, discontinue their stream of, of rebirths. Uh, but only there's only one individual that becomes a Buddha every few aeons or every many aeons. And um, the early Mahayana Sutras repeat this scheme and say that there's five that uh, in the Lanka Avatara Sutra, the Sutra of the Entry or Descent into Lanka, that uh, portrays uh, supposedly the Buddha traveled to Sri Lanka during his lifetime and gave teachings there, which there's absolutely zero historical evidence for, but that's what the Sutra portends. And in that Sutra, there's this idea of there being five different classes of individuals. Shravakas, Pratyeka Buddhas, um, Bodhisattvas, and, and um, also what's called the cutoff type of individual, and also the uns uncertain individuals. And they're called gotra, that there's these five gotra, five classes or lineages or uh, families or clans or sort of types of beings that have beings can have one of these five types of potential and that the bodhisattva potential is extremely rare and the cutoff family is this idea that there's some individuals that are so fixed in their either their their wrong views or so uh, defiled with passion, aggression, and stupidity that they're never going to be able to achieve any kind of enlightenment. And then there's the fifth class of beings that is called the uncertain class, and it's, it's unclear what their destiny might be. And um, so you have this remnant, this odd uh, system, scheme portrayed in the Laka Avatara Sutra. And then you have the, uh, uh, like, uh, many hundreds of years and many, many, many other Mahayana sutras that then go to great lengths to, uh, correct that view and say, no, that's not right. There are no cutoff individuals. 
There, there are no individuals that are never going to achieve enlightenment, and there are none that are uncertain. Um, all beings have the potential for enlightenment. And then there's a number of sutras, beginning with like the Lotus Sutra, the famous uh, white Sutra of the White Lotus, where uh, the Buddha states that all beings have the potential for complete Buddhahood. And uh, he uses this famous analogy of the burning house, where he says um, that he's been acting like um, the father of a huge family that lives in a huge house, a huge mans mansion. And um, one day that mansion catches on fire and there's all these children in all the different rooms of the mansion. And because they don't have like uh, fire alarms and internet and things like that, an efficient way to notify people that there's a fire in one part of the house that's soon going to engulf the entire house in, in uh, deadly fire. The Buddha um, goes outside and with, a, with the few that he can gather and gives them uh, various uh, um, play, uh, what are they called? Toys, various toys. And he, he lists this... Uh, uh, he enumerates a certain very sort of uh, maybe culturally interesting list of like what kind of toys might have been in vogue back then for the, the wealthy. And uh, by doing that, he then has them make a lot of noise outside the house, being very excited with these little, it's, it's basically like uh, toy cars, you know, and trains that you would give kids these days, little crude, you know, versions of those back in ancient India. And he says, I gave, I gave um, you, you children these little toys to try to get you out of the house really quickly so that you wouldn't get burned in the house. And I knew that if I tried to explain to you that there was a, a Maserati just like down the road you would have no idea what a Maserati is and you wouldn't get excited about it and you wouldn't leave the house. But I had to give you these lesser gifts, these lesser little toys, because I know that those are what you play with and you like and you recognize them to get you out of the house so that you didn't get burned down and all killed. And the analogy is that the Buddha has been doing this with the Shravakas and the early sutras. The entire basket of early sutras presents a provisional teaching that samsara is a, a complete ball of fire, and there's a real samsara and a real nirvana, and defilements are real, and we have to overcome them with real antidotes and remedies of the path, and um, uh, beings are of, of fixed types. They're either shravakas, pradyeka buddhas, or one in, once in a blue moon, a million zillion aeons, there's a, a bodhisattva that becomes a Buddha. And so I made that scheme up because I knew that if I told you all that you could become Buddhas, you would be disheartened because it takes three incalculable aeons to be a Buddha, become a Buddha. And it's it seems it's impossible and it's just beyond con conception. 
and you would have been not excited about it and you wouldn't have got your button gear to leave the house, the burning house. So I told you, okay, there's our hot ship and it's within reach, stream entry, the first stage of our of enlightenment in the in the sort of Theravadan or early Sutra tradition is within reach, fairly, fairly reachable by, by most human beings. And so I gave you that scheme. And interestingly, when you read the sutras, you find numerous situations where the Buddha will meet with individuals who, at least in this life, have not practiced meditation before, not cultivated the path. And he spends some time with them and he and, and there's a sort of stock phraseology that they use where he he teaches them about ethical virtue and uh, uh, um, cheers them up with the idea of uh, being virtuous and the fruits of, of being virtuous in terms of a, a good rebirth and a, a happier place in this life. And then he takes them stepwise down the path of, well, really samsara just is endless and you could actually achieve uh, a higher good than um, a better rebirth and um, and and so um, I, I've totally lost who I was <laughs> I'm so spaced out um, but he basically says all of that was a pretense. I was just giving you those earlier paths to get you out of the house. And it, it, this is in the Lotus Sutra, a very famous sutra throughout uh, Asia, in particular East Asia, China, Japan, uh, Korea, and uh, Vietnam. And it's the uh, foundation upon which the Pure Land tradition of Buddhism is built, which, by the way, is the largest type of Buddhism in the world. They're more Pure Land Buddhists than any other type of Buddhists. And um, because most of China and Japan are Pure Land Buddhists. And um, so he says that was all a facade. All of you are going to become enlightened. All of you are going to become Buddhas. And he starts going through his major disciples, Shariputra, Madhgalayana, Katyayana, and Kashyapa, and... Um, Sabuti and all the you know the guys that we see featured in the early sutras, and he says you're going to be so and so Buddha, and you're going to be a Buddha of this realm and so and so in so many aeons from now, and in that realm, beings live for five zillion years, and they teach the Dharma through odors. I'm not making this up, by the way. <laughs> There's this idea that the Dharma is taught in different ways in different realms, like through visual things, through auditory, through odor, through you know other senses, and um, you know so he just paints this huge picture that everybody's going to become a Buddha, and so that uh, sutra, you know, was a sort of revolutionary thing, and he and he's basically saying that whole scheme of there being gotras. Um, was an artificial scheme that there's, uh, and I guess maybe I'm explaining that part a little bit incorrectly in that the bodhisattvas are, they have the gotra of the Buddha and the others 
don't, supposedly, in the early system. And he's saying, no, it's not true. All beings, all sentient beings, have the gotra, have the, are, are of the clan of beings that will become Buddhas, that can become Buddhas. And he doesn't get intellectual at all about it in this sutra. It's very simple, just sort of uh, a lot of imagery and a lot of uh, celebration. And um, But the idea basically is that any, any being that has a sentient capability has the gotra of, of the Buddha, can become a Buddha. And so this term gotra becomes like the the uh, forerunner of Buddha nature. And so what this text by Maitreya, which, you know, appears on the scene, um, maybe a um, hundred years or so after the Lotus Sutra, something, you know, it's hard to date these things, particularly when you, you, I don't, it's, you're, when uh, you don't have a good memory like I, like me. And um, and so Maitreya in this text is saying all all beings have this gotra, and therefore they have Buddha nature. So I, I think that's what's going on in this third point, and that it, without that scheme, I think this point doesn't like really make a lot of sense. But and so you should be saying. Well, show us some references to this. I don't believe you. You should, you should send us some something about this. And so I agree with you that I should do that. And if one of you would be willing to remind me, I will. I will endeavor to do that. Any comments on that, Mary Beth? Is he mixing provisional and definitive? Is the Gotra provisional and the well, that's what the um, well, that's what the earlier tradition sort of is saying. Um, well, it's it's like he's saying the gotra is the same as the Buddha essence. Yeah, and, I was gonna, yeah, I was gonna say it doesn't seem like there's any real. I mean, I think the historical background makes sense and is helpful, but it seems like. Once you get to the point where you're saying everybody becomes Buddha, then the notion of Gotra becomes irrelevant. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a very funny point at this point. It it seems like it's a in that scheme, it's a step. So the potential is the potential to reveal Buddha nature, not necessarily saying that you have Buddha nature or that the potential to reveal Buddha nature comes from within. So then Mipam's making the logical argument that, well, if it's coming from within, then you have Buddha nature in you. Does that make sense? <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm it, trying to summarize what you were saying. <laughs> yeah. To me, what you just said makes is very similar to what I, I understand Mipam to have written here. And yet both of them seem a little bit circular and somewhat superfluous, to be, you know, blatantly honest about the, the whole thing. Well, as I was reading it, I was kind of wondering, why does he, why bother to talk about potential at all? It seemed like it's kind of unnecessary. 
Yeah, yeah, that's why I'm trying to explain. That's this is the only explanation for it that I have it because I agree with you. It does seem like what does this third point mean? It's it seems sort of superfluous. So anyway, think I, about it, uh, Emily. I just something hit me when we reread the the Uttara Tantra passage this time that hadn't hit me before, which was connecting mm. this line with the line before it. And when I saw, because in suchness there is no division, because they have potential for enlightenment, and then you go on to the last one, all beings have at all times Buddha essence. That clicked something for me because clearly at least some people have potential for enlightenment because the Buddha became enlightened. And we know through reading a lot of this stuff that in suchness there is no division. And if those two things are true then therefore all beings at all times have Buddha essence. So I know I'm kind of breaking from Mipam's, he's trying to do a passage by passage, but when I saw the three together this time, it like clicked for me in some way that hadn't previously, um, which made all these small points in that he's fleshing out here, like fall nicely for me this time around. Cool. You know, for for me, when you say that, it the the first line, the second line, links in my mind to like the first part of the third line. In in that, when you say all beings have the gotra, I'm already like you're you've you've already told me that they have Buddha Buddha nature, and then to like make this equivalence between the gotra and buddha nature just seems odd but i don't know you know to some extent they're they're trying to explain the the early buddhists are trying to explain why some people can practice and practice for years and study and and it just doesn't happen <laughs> and others like you know would meet the buddha and they were just like click i'm sorry kevin well, I was just thinking, maybe it's just a remnant of this historical questioning. So yeah. He's, he's kind of doing homage to the previous argument that went for eons or it went for thousands of years, well, hundreds of years. Yeah, you know? I think I think that's right. And I, I think he's just sort of like, it's like uh, concluding the, the trajectory of that evolution and saying, Gotra is the same as Buddha nature. It's it's sort of like it's obligatory to address it. Yeah, this yeah, and uh, if yeah, if you don't, then it's like this issue that you haven't sort of covered, and 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 maybe it's sort of like putting the whole issue to bed at this point. It's like the end of that question. Anyway, okay, so let's move on. There are therefore. So the bottom of 166, three arguments to prove that all beings possess the Tathagata essence, a conclusion that derives from the perfect path of reasoning based on the power of objective fact, being once again as opposed to reasoning based on uh, scripture or hearsay. The first is that there is no difference in nature between the Buddha potential at the time of the cause and the Dharmakaya at the time of the result. The second is that because the Dharmakaya is present when one attains the result, it must also be present at the time when one is a sentient being. So that's the conversely. 
without there being any increase or diminution, whether in the enlightened or the unenlightened state. The third argument is that even if one makes a nominal distinction between the earlier cause and the later result, in reality they are of one taste in the nature of the unchanging Dharma Dhatu. And this is similar, uh, so the third, you know, is the third line of the stanza, and this is similar to, I think, what Mary Beth was expressing, that it's sort of like provisional ultimate, and he's using the term nominal distinction. You know, like uh, in, in classifying the teachings, we we focus on the provisional and definitive, but there is also this classification of literal and uh, implied meaning of them. And uh, another one way of uh, construing that would be nominal and um, actual or something like that. Anyway. The reasoning that proves that the Tathagata Garbha is present in all sentient beings shows also that there is no difference between final liberation, the Tathagata, and the ultimate nature of all phenomena. This is a really interesting point, is that rocks are Dharmakaya, and mold, and cockroaches, and all sorts of terrible and inanimate things and good things. Um, and if one understands that this happens thanks to the Tathagatagarbha itself, a single final vehicle, the Mahayana, will be established. And this phrase, a single final vehicle, is the phrase that's used in the Lotus Sutra where the Buddha uh, says there are not three yanas. And, and at that time, three yanas we're not talking about Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, we're talking about Shravakayana, Pratyeka, Buddhayana, and Bodhisattvayana. And there, as well as what he's Mipam is saying here, there are not three yanas. There's one yana, and they use this phrase, one yana, which in Sanskrit is eka yana. E-K-A means one. Eka yana. And he's, he repeats this over and over in the Lotus Sutra as well as final and it's like there's no more discussion <laughs> the, the, it's 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 to that that yana leads to buddhahood and there's no other path you know there's nothing else beyond that so it's the end of the discussion there are on the other hand those who say that the sugadagarb is not present in the state of sentient beings but that it is present at the time of buddhahood and so he's uh, revisiting the uh the views of others that he earlier uh, showed the fallacy of. And those who say that the qualities of enlightenment are not present at the causal stage, but are newly acquired at the time of the result. So these are two different ways of misconstruing this, the uh, understanding of Buddha nature. One is that um, it's something that doesn't exist in sentient beings, but somehow magically appears through the process of the past and the overcoming of defilements. That Buddha nature is uh, achieved or attained or uh, created, and therefore you you have the fallacy of uh, uh, basically saying that Buddha nature is compounded and impermanent and changes and can be created, and therefore it can be destroyed. And those who say that the qualities of enlightenment are not present at the causal stage, but are newly acquired. There's, there's this other way of trying to explain, 
you, you know, basically uh, many schools, individuals, traditions try to somehow differentiate the Buddha nature at the time of ascension being at the time of a Buddha. Somehow they can't accept that there can be no difference between those two. Um, and so they, another way of construing it is to say, well, the Buddha nature is present in sentient beings, but it doesn't have the, the qualities. It's not like turned on, it's not inflated, it's not uh, opened up, it's not, you know, it's the wrong color, it hasn't matured, it hasn't blossomed, you know, all these different ways of describing it. It says, all such people turn their backs on the meaning of the Mahayana and the arguments that they use to establish it as a single perfect vehicle become incoherent speculation. You know, and he's making this really cool point, which is that if you, if you don't understand this, this way of um, understanding the, the Buddha nature, then you really don't understand all of the Mahayana. It's not like just this one part of Mahayana, but what the, the essence of the Mahayana is that all beings can, are going to achieve Buddhahood. Um, consequently, those who aspire to the teaching of the Supreme Vehicle must make considerable use of their intelligence in order to understand this point. And, uh, you know, what he's, he's acknowledging is that this this point of the of the Mahayana that Mipam is bringing out that the Buddha nature doesn't change; it's fully there in ascension being, just as much as in a Buddha. And uh, he's acknowledging that this is a subtle point, and it's difficult to uh, wrap our minds around. This this assertion that the Buddha element primordial in primordially, meaning from beginningless time, is endowed with enlightened qualities is, is, that that is present even at the time when one is a sentient being, i.e. Um, obscured with infinite, so to speak, defilements, is indeed a profound point beyond the reach of the conceptual mind. The conceptual mind, this is conceptually illogical. And it was for this reason that the Buddha told his disciples to trust his teaching, to have faith in this teaching. Uh, Liz. Does that just say that um, Buddhas are not sentient beings? That's correct. Thank you for clarifying that. That's right. There's, there's two types of people in the room, sentient beings and Buddhas. When you become a Buddha, you're no longer a sentient being. It's this, it's this odd distinction that's made of like, uh, you're, uh, you know, so it should lead you to question, well, what's the difference? You know, what is, what, uh, what is this, what is a phenomena, an appearance or apparent uh, phenomena lose when they go from being a sentient being to a Buddha? And then you get into all sorts of, you know, prasangika, uh, quicksand of like, well, <laughs> there's, there's no, it's not like there's a person that carries the, the qualities of a sentient being and they put those down and then they take up the qualities of a Buddha. So you're sort of in the same boat as, as the Tathagatagarbha issue, if that made any sense. I see some quizzical eyebrows, but 
Uh, maybe that'll be, maybe we'll revisit that as we go. Let's see. Um, say, to trust his teaching, saying that it was undeceiving, however difficult it was for them to understand it using their own strength. The implication here between the lines is that the Buddha rarely asked his disciples to accept something on faith, on trust. He really emphasized reasoning and personal, personally experiencing and, and um, examining and applying the teachings and see if they work to see if they work but in this case of uh, there's actually two two things that uh, where the Buddha asks us to trust him one is on the the workings of karma it's said to be beyond the scope of sentient beings that while we understand karma like generally the actual, as well as the complete, uh, uh, infinite expanse of the uh, um, application or ramifications of karma is beyond the mind of sentient beings. And only a Buddha can, can really comprehend the workings of karma. And similarly, only a Buddha can comprehend this, this contradictory, illogical um, sort of uh, a fact or situation of the way that Buddha nature is portrayed here. And um, on the one hand, it, it sounds sort of elitist, you know, sort of like the Buddha is the only one. But on the other hand, another way to describe that is if you understand this, then you are a Buddha. If you're able to understand this, then you've, you've gone beyond conceptual mind and you know, it's sort of like, in order to understand this, you need to go beyond conceptual mind. And if you go beyond conceptual mind, then you understand this. Sort of, maybe. Um, I, I was sort of surprised because I felt like if they're, they go to such lengths and to logical reasoning <laughs> to give you all the explanations, that it seems kind of odd to then throw it out and say, hey, just take it on faith. And I had this, you know, the same thing you were explaining that he doesn't usually do that. And notwithstanding what you just said, because certainly I'm making no claim, I felt like, I feel like it is understandable, and that certainly doesn't mean I'm a Buddha, I know I'm not, but um, I feel like they do get, I, I, I think it is within the, I mean, I was surprised when he said this thing that you can't relate with it with conceptual mind, because I feel like to a certain degree, at least you can. There's a well, well, let's explore that just for a second, because it seems to me that what what this view is saying is that I'm sorry. What the conceptual mind struggles with is how can there basically be no change between a sentient being and a Buddha? And at the other hand, as we just went through, sentient beings and Buddhas are you know totally different animals, and so something happens in between there. But at the same time, the Buddha nature of a sentient being doesn't change when they become a Buddha. And that, you know, is sort of, that those two things together are sort of conceptually contradictory. Well, I mean, obviously I've gotten acclimated over years of <laughs> hearing this stuff, so I, I feel like, you know, there's certain things that I do accept 
maybe some of it is faith, although I'm not a real faith, you know, I'm not, that's not my strongest suit. So normally, you know, I like to see explanation. And I, I guess, you know, it seems to me that the defilement argument fills in there in terms of understanding what's, you know, what's happening between point A and point A prime. <laughs> it's, uh, I don't want to project my mind into or understanding into yours, but it's, it feels like what I do is I, I say conceptually that I accept that there can be a logical, a, a conceptually illogical situation that is true. Definitely, that's also, I mean, you definitely have to have some fluidity of mind that everything isn't, um, you know, doesn't line up. You know, I mean, I think that's also true, but I, I it just, it's, it does seem like we, the idea that you can only relate to it as a Buddha, I guess what he means is you can only fully understand it. Yeah. yeah. But it doesn't mean it's totally incomprehensible, I think, even at the level of, you know, and and you're you're the point you made at the beginning is really good is like why did he go to such elaborate lengths to pro, you know prove it logically when then it's sort of like okay we should just trust <laughs> uh, let's see and it was for this reason that the Buddha told his disciples to trust his teaching saying it was undeceiving however difficult it was for them to understand it using their own strength this therefore is a doctrine. That of the utmost profundity. Scholars of limited intelligence, however, produce a stream of objections to it. It follows, they say, that Buddhas and sentient beings have the same kind of mind, and so on. But all their arguments and refutations, based as they are in conventional reasoning, are futile. As it is said in the Samdhi Nirmochana Sutra, which is like this is the famous sutra one of the more famous sutras of the third turning and in this sutra the scheme of there being three turnings is presented the ultimate and the compounded sphere are by nature neither different nor the same you know and that's this sort of sums up the contradictory situation of buddha nature they're neither this idea that sentient beings, the, the Buddha nature of sentient beings, doesn't change when they become Buddhas, is con, is uh, that is neither the same nor different from saying that sentient beings and Buddhas are worlds apart. When uh, whoever understands them to be different or the same engages in them incorrectly. So it is that the nature of the mind, the Buddha essence, and the mind that is a relative phenomena must not be asserted as being either the same or different. Right? And no, as to their mode of being, they are never beyond the condition of the Dharmata. In, in all cases, nothing is beyond Dharmata. Everything is Dharmata. As to their appearing mode, however, so that was in their true nature. There's the uh, the mode of their being and the appearing mode, and he's referring to the two realms or uh, domains of omniscience. The way that the uh, the uh, omniscience of a Buddha is described, or um, 
the wisdom of a Buddha is said to be omniscient because a Buddha knows the mode of being of all phenomena, their true mode of being, and their way of appearing, which basically is just a sort of interesting way of saying the ultimate and conventional or relative nature of all of reality. Uh, let's see. And as to their appearing mode, however, it is always possible for delusion to arise. And not only is there no contradiction here, but if one were to say otherwise, such a position would be defective, since it would mean either that there is no possibility of liberation, or that no one could ever be deluded. <laughs> it is precisely because there is a discrepancy between the way things are and the way things appear that it is established on the one hand that beings are deluded and on the other hand that they can enter the path, discard delusion and achieve Buddhahood. Through the kind of reasoning that examines the ultimate, it is established that all phenomena are emptiness. You know, and that one by comparison is, is sort of easy, right? You know, we're, we're good with that. Yeah, right, everything's empty. But, you know, we have to realize that that was a huge leap for for students early on that it was like what you mean the path is empty you mean enlightenment is empty you mean the neurosis in my mind and my defilements are empty and the chair i'm sitting on and come on uh, nevertheless the qualities of the sugatagarbha are not invalidated thereby thereby just because they're empty for as the buddha affirmed although the unsurpassable qualities are present they are by that same reasoning, found to be by nature empty, right? Everything that appears is empty, and everything that is empty appears. And there's nothing that is not empty. The meaning taught by the scriptures of the second turning of the Dharma wheel is that all phenomena about samsara and nirvana are empty, for these scriptures say that even the Sugatagarbha is of the nature of emptiness. By contrast, the particular and essential teaching that the Sugatagarbha is inseparable from the appearances of the kayas and wisdoms, meaning of a Buddha, or the Dharmakaya of a Buddha, I'm sorry, the kayas, so all three kayas and wisdoms of a Buddha, which themselves possess an empty nature, corresponds to the wisdom intention of the sutras of definitive meaning belonging to the final turning of the Dharma wheel, which, from this point of view alone, is superior to the second teaching. And in the Samdhi Nirmochana Sutra, the section that discusses the three turnings of the wheel of the Dharma describes the second and third turning of the wheel of the Dharma almost identically until it gets to a phrase in the third description of the third turning where it says that he, the Buddha has distinguished in what way phenomena are empty. Whereas in the second turning it says that all phenomena are empty. And then when it describes the third turning it says he, he explains in what way phenomena are empty. This is why the Samdhi Nirmochana Sutra praises the meaning of the final turning as supreme. I should, I should circulate that, the little 
there's like three paragraphs in that sutra that go through the three turnings of the wheel of the Dharma. I'll try to do that, but if somebody could remind me, that would be helpful. Um, this is why the Samadhi Sutra praises the meaning of the final turning of supreme, not as a general assessment, but with reference only to the definitive teaching that sets forth the Buddha essence. It's supreme because it, it explains explicitly that there is emptiness, that all phenomena are empty, and that the uh, Sugata Garbha, um, you know, it, it explains what the Sugata Garbha is or what the Tathagata Garbha is. This point can be clearly ascertained from other sutras, such as the one that speaks about the Buddha element, using the example of the cleansing of a jewel. And, uh, you know, there's a uh, series of Buddha nature sutras. Um, there's like 10 Tathagatagarbha sutras, which are part of the third turning sutras, and not all of the third turning sutras. But in those 10 Tathagatagarbha sutras, there's a whole series of similes of Buddha nature that are given. This uh, set of, I think, 22 similes. And uh, it's presented in the Profound Treasury. There's a little scheme of it. I think Emily showed it in one class. You showed us that page in the in the second volume that shows all the, the um, analogies for Buddha nature. And one of them is, uh, it's a jewel that's dirty. And all you have to do is cleanse it. Anyway, we therefore need to keep together this, the aspects of appearance and emptiness. That is, the teachings on emptiness as revealed in the scriptures of the second turning, and the teachings on the kayas and wisdoms as revealed in the scriptures of the third turning. The omniscient Longchen Rabjom held that the meanings of both the second and third turning, together and without separation, constituted the definitive teaching. And this is precisely the, the position that we too should hold. You know, so he's, he's uh, implying that, and, and you can uh, experience this by reading many other authors, that some will say the second turning is definitive and the third turning is provisional. And some will say the third turning is definitive and the second is provisional. And Longchenpa and Mipom are saying that when you take the two together, then you have the definitive teaching. And if you, if you consider them separately as uh, sort of complete teachings, then you experience the provisional. But only by understanding them as, as having to be uh, understood in a complementary fashion, then you understand the definitive teaching. There's no conflict between the second and third turnings of the wheel of the Dharma. There's no need to say, as some do, that one turning is definitive while the other is provisional. What is more, when the two turnings are brought together, and when it is understood that the causal ground continuum is the Suga to Garba, this becomes the crucial point of the essential instructions of the Vajrayana. So this, this way of understanding the... Uh, unity of the second and third turnings is the foundation for the Vajrayana, at least in the, the Nyingma and Kagyu traditions. Um, one must 
Therefore, understand that all such teachings of the Buddha come together into a single point. Regarding this final meaning, the Garjana, Asanga, and all the Aryas are of one mind, as we may understand clearly from such writings as Nagarjana's Dharmadhatu Stava and Bodhicitta Vivarana and Asanga's Uttara Tantra. Now, it's sort of odd that the translators put in Asanga, attributed the Uttara Tantra to Asanga, because the tradition, and I believe Mipam himself has attributed the Uttara Tantra to Maitreya. Anyway, moreover, as Master Nagarjuna has himself said, emptiness expounded in the sutras and everything the conqueror has taught all serve to take away defilement. They do not cause the Buddha element to change. And he's probably quoting the Dharmadhatu Stava, the praise of Dharmadhatu. As this text says, when one investigates with the kind of reasoning that examines the ultimate, the Vajra-like inseparability of the two truths is established, and since this is the vast expanse which cannot be broached by merely intellectual understanding, there is, with regard to the ultimate in itself, no basis for engaging in controversy. This phrase, by merely intellectual understanding, is sort of uh, key and, and interesting going back to this idea of faith or trust. So now uh, we have a heading which is uh, begins with a, the numeral one, the uh, number one rather, meaning that it's like we've, we've begun a new major chapter in the text. Uh, the first chapter, you know, if we look at the outline, on page 145, if we flip back there for a, for a moment. You see that we've completed the first chapter, so to speak, of this text, which is all about the Sugata Garbha being present in the minds of beings. And the second chapter now that we're at is about the manner in which the Sukhuta Garbha is present in the minds of beings. The first was was sort of asserting and proving and defending that it is present in the minds of beings. And now we're going to see or uh, read Mipam's explanation of the manner in which it is present. And then the third chapter is a refutation of false positions regarding the Buddha nature or element, which he's already touched on a number of times, but I guess you'll go in more detail into it. It is now time to explain the way in which the element is present in the minds of beings. So I've switched back to page 170. From the standpoint of their own nature, uh, let's see, of their own nature, their way of being, all phenomena are encompassed by the expanse of the Dharmata. The Dharmata rests in a state of equality or evenness without arising or ceasing. It is beyond the categories of good or bad, of samsara, nirvana, and so on. It is beyond the distinctions of transcendence and ordinariness, self and other, great and small, as well as differences of time, past, present, and so on. It is just the unchanging, unmoving, one and only sphere of the Dharmadhatu. Although this is the case with regard to the nature of things, deluded adventitious perception nevertheless occurs in accordance with which the bodies, minds, 
and all the objects of the three worlds appear. You know, the whole thing is sort of, uh, on the one hand, contradictory, and on the other hand, um, supported just by experience. It's like, you know, well, how, how can there, everything be Dharma-ta, Dharma-da-tu, and yet how, and then at the same time there's confusion. And it's like, well, look out the window. That's, you know, it's sort of like saying, well, how, how can it be raining and sunny at the same time, you know, the way it is sometimes? And you're like, but look, you know, look out the window. That's what's going on. <laughs> Derek? Yes, ma'am. What are the three worlds? Ah, uh, good question. There's the first world is the, all the developed countries like the United States, and the rich and the wealthy and the live in the lap of luxury. <laughs> Cynthia's slapping me in the face. That was good. I like that. The three worlds are the worlds of desire. The world that we all live in, which is uh, created from desiring existence, desiring what we what uh, is deemed to be pleasurable. Did I just mute myself? Can you guys hear me? Okay, good. And then there's the world of pure form, uh, where. Um, Beings don't have real bodies. They don't have bodies like we do. But they ha uh, there's no gross form. You know, our, our bodies are made out of gross form, and this world is made out of what's called gross or coarse form. And the, the, the realm of form, the second world, is pure form. It's subtle form, which is like the essence of form. It's like... Um, atoms or something, atoms only or something, I don't know. But uh, the, the easier way to, to talk about it or that it's presented is that the, the world of form is where beings who have achieved the absorption states take rebirth. And so if you are in an absorption state, you are able to exist in the realm of form. And if you're not in an absorption state, you cannot enter the realm of form, the world of form. And so they talk about there being the gods of the form realm, and they live a very long time. And they're basically talking about beings that have achieved, as humans, uh, different stages of the absorption states. And then they've died, and then they've their uh, next birth, or their next coming to be, is in the realm of form. And they still have a, a, a sense of being, but without a, 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 a gross physical body that separates them from others. It's a little bit hard to comprehend. And then there's the, the formless realm. It's the third realm where, where uh, beings who have uh, achieved and established the experience of the uh, formless absorptions, the infinitude of consciousness, space, uh, perception and neither perception nor non-perception where they exist and so there there's no there's no manifestation at all it's all just pure mind and these this scheme of the four of these realms is like a way of explaining um, 
or uh, a way of structuring different levels of enlightened of of advanced beings that other traditions uh, present or encountered or that are encountered in other traditions where they say you know um, our teachers are able to remain in samadhi for days and, and can do this and that and they're going to be they're enlightened and they're going to they're not uh, going to ascend to you know some sort of heaven state so the Buddha says, well, they're just in the, in the realm of form. They're just stuck. They're still in samsara, but they're in like a, a, an incredible version of samsara. So those are the three realms. I'm sorry, I missed one. What was, was it before form? The desire. Okay, okay, good. The Dharmata rests in a state of equal equality or evenness without arising. I think I read all this. Let's see. Although this is the case with regard to the nature of things, deluded adventitious perception nevertheless occurs in accordance with which the bodies, minds, and all the objects of the three worlds appear. That's where we were. Even uh, when the nature of the Dharmata is not perceived, the Dharmata is not absent. It is present without diverging even slightly from its own nature. Thus, the dharmata, or nature of the mind, is, as it were, unmanifest, enclosed within a sheath of adventitious defilement. And this is a common dis uh, description or adjective or uh, analogy for the way Buddha nature is described. Like within some sort of sheath, like a sword goes into a sheath and you can't see it and it can't cut, but it's still there. It's just covered. Um, Is it kind of like the inside of the chocolate bunny? <laughs> the inside of the chocolate bunny. I hope so, because I like the inside of the chocolate bunny. Um, it is present in the, in the uh, midst of it like a kernel, an essential core, and like a chocolate Easter bunny, and is referred to as a potential or essence. We are told to understand this by means of nine examples, the treasure hidden beneath the earth, and so on. Moreover, the scripture speaks of how, in relation to adventitious defilement, the Buddha potential is found to be in three different situations of impurity, of partial impurity, and finally of complete purity. And so this is talking about deluded sentient beings who are not on the, this, the boomies, have not achieved the first boomy, the first stage of enlightenment, are impure. And then those of partial impurity are those who have achieved the, uh, the first boomy up through those who have achieved the tenth boomy, where they have... Uh, achieved some quality of purity, but still have impurity, still have defilements. And finally, of complete purity, Buddhas. Nevertheless, in all these three situations, there's no difference whatever in the Buddha potential itself. As is said in the Uttara Tantra, because the wisdom of the Buddha resides in beings, they are never parted from that stainless nature. And since potential for enlightenment is named according to the fruit, 
it is said that beings all possess the Buddha essence. So named according to the fruit, the fruit of uh, Buddha uh, potential is Buddhahood. And so the name of the potential for Buddhahood takes the, the character of the result, the fruit. It is also said in the same text, this also is by nature Dharmakaya. It is suchness and potential. And also as impure, 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 and completely pure are described respectively beings, bodhisattvas, tathagatas. If failing to understand this, one thinks that the Sugatagarbha is tucked away somewhere in the five aggregates like a juniper berry in a metal basin, so that there are in effect two minds, one diluted, one undiluted, accompanying each other like light and dark. And if, it, if in this way one affirms or rejects the Sugatagarbha, one succeeds only in making a lot of noise without getting any closer to the view of the Mayana. Sort of like saying, well, there's two brains, you know, there's the left brain, and that's the deluded conceptual mind, and then there's the right brain, and that's non-conceptual and vast and enlightened, you know, my uh, my stroke of insight, right? That book, that experience that woman had, you know, shifted, experienced the right brain, and was like, whoa, you know, in, in comparison to being in the left brain, which most of us are most of the time, being in the right brain was like this totally unstructured, non-conceptual, vast world. On the other hand, it serves no purpose to proclaim a teaching on the Buddha essence to a band of mere intellectuals whose minds are untrained in the meaning of the great vehicle. Indeed, a profound teaching such as this is not to be taught to those who are spiritually immature or to those who are outside the Dharma. This is an interesting uh, proposition. It's saying that we should be careful who we, in, in, in what context we present Buddha nature, because it can easily be misunderstood as like uh, Atman or uh, Brahman, you know, a sort of... Uh, eternal essence of a, some sort of greater being or in a, in the way of there being a difference between the Buddha nature in a time of ascension being and the Buddha nature in time of a Buddha and um, you know this wave of correctly understanding Buddha nature is subtle and uh, not easy to grasp and uh, so we should one should so be should we? So should we continue or not? We should decide, right? <laughs> I decide. I think we should go. I think we should continue. <laughs> too late. I think too late. Yeah, we've already <laughs> dipped our <laughs> too toe. Late. We already. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. But it it is interesting to think about, you know, how widespread now Buddha nature is presented in, in the world, and and uh, and there are some some uh, I don't you know want to disparage anybody. But there are some quite, uh, let's say, unsophisticated presentations of Buddha nature out there that uh, you might have or will encounter. And uh, it's an interesting quandary now that you have some insight into the subtlety of it, of uh, like how to react, you know, to a friend that says, you know, well, isn't Buddha nature just like... Uh, the Godhead or 
like you know Christianity or Hinduism you know isn't it just the same thing as Hinduism and you're like oh well <laughs> <laughs> let me give you the three reasons <laughs> seems um, like it's a little late in the book to be putting in this little caveat though yeah, there should be a warning on the cover, yeah, not for the faint of heart or something. Not for a, a band of, not for for mere intellectuals. <laughs> like a circle, you know, mere intellectuals with a, a, a strike through it. Uh, for such people are unsuitable vessels for the reception of this profound doctrine. One should instead explain the Dharma to them, beginning with the teachings on no self, impermanence, and so on demonstrating it with logical proofs but an interesting you know uh explanation is sort of like you know people have a, a, a unsophisticated understanding of buddha nature sometimes and he's saying well really you should divert their attention and like talk about things that are easier to understand and of greater potential benefit to them in terms of uh working on their defilements and progressing on the path because if you misunderstand buddha nature just like misunderstanding emptiness it's a sort of a slippery slope so you're Again, saying that that the same thing as what you said before that basically you should give people toys yeah that is that does seem to be the uh, implication doesn't it yeah so you give them these days what would you give them like an iphone or something <laughs> Giving them, basically giving them so early teachings. That didn't seem so early, though, the no-self. No, the no-self is, uh, well, what does it he is say? It's part of Hinayana, right? It's, uh, yeah, it's very much part of Hinayana. Hinayana is very much uh, Anatman, what's the main teaching of the, the Buddha from day one, or hmm. in the earliest teachings. No, no phenomena is the second turning. But the first turning is no self. Yeah, isn't it like chapter one of PCOD, volume one? <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to understand that, you know, the, the way we are trained in the Dharma through primarily Trungpa Rinpoche's presentation is not the way the Buddha really taught those topics early on. Trungpa Rinpoche, uh, it's very similar, and uh, he more than probably most other uh, Tibetan teachers or Mahayana teachers actually tries to go back to, or or actually not tries, but actually takes us back to the original presentation. And yes, he begins with those basic teachings. He goes through the three marks of existence a number of times in that first volume and like the first chapter. And the skandhas. And the skandhas, definitely. The five big ones, the basics, big time. Thank you for that, for pointing that out. Um, it is pointless to teach them the doctrine of the Buddha essence, for since it cannot be proved on the basis of ordinary valid cognition. You know, which is interesting because so many teachers like give talks to beginners on Buddha nature. It's like become this really um, popular topic or popular way of introducing Buddhism and making it accessible for people as Buddha nature. 
uh, for since it cannot be proved on the basis of ordinary valid cognition alone, it simply becomes an occasion for defective intellectual positions, affirming what is not the case and negating what is. On the other hand, when the minds of people are trained from the lower tenet systems of the Buddhist teaching onward, and when an extraordinary conviction arises in their minds regarding the non-figurative ultimate of great emptiness, the actual emptiness, if at that point the teachings, the teaching on the Buddha essence is gradually revealed to them, they will experience confident faith in its regard. Faith. Therefore, one should avoid the mistake of thinking on the one hand that although the path, this path is true, it cannot be proved by reasoning. So, you know, this idea of faith, he's saying it would be a mistake to think that although the path is true, it cannot be proved by reasoning. And that one needs just to have faith. And on the other, that since it cannot be proved on the basis of ordinary valid cognition, it is not a true path. You know, so um, in in discussing this, Mipom has uh, clearly delineated that there's two levels of valid cognition, because in the earlier traditions of the uh, Shravaka slash Pratyekabodhyanas, i.e. the sort of Hinayana and the Mahayana, there's this um, reliance upon valid cognition as the ultimate sort of uh, uh, criteria, the ultimate way of analyzing the teachings. And there's, there's, there's no distinction between conventional valid cognition and ultimate valid cognition. And it's sort of a second turning type of thing where, where um, what Mipam and uh, other teachers like him are doing is they're clarifying in what way, in what context, and to what extent the second, the conventional, uh, the conventional level of valid cognition is relevant, and in what way it's not, and we need to rely on an ultimate valid cognition, a valid cognition that applies to the ultimate, because conventional valid cognition applies to the conventional rev level of reality. Um, let's see. Therefore, one should avoid the mistake of thinking on the one hand that although this path is true, it cannot be proved by reasoning, it can be realized only by experience, or of thinking on the other, that since it cannot be proved on the basis of where valid cognition is not a true path. Avoiding this mistake, one should become expert in the crucial ways of the practice of the path. So, next chapter, a refutation of false positions. Certain wrong ideas about the nature of the Buddha element should now be dealt with. These are first, the view that the element is not empty, but truly existent. Second, the view that the element is no more than an empty void. And third, the view that the element is impermanent and compounded. So the first is, is sort of a, a talking about a crude way of understanding the Zhentong tradition, that the element is not empty but truly existent. is It would be a, an incomplete way of understanding Zhentong. Second, the view that the element is no more than an empty void is uh, wrong tong. 
and uh, these terms Wang Tong and Zhen Tong, if you're unfamiliar with them, are two different ways of understanding Prasangika Madhyamaka. And uh, Wang Tong is, is heralded by Tsongkhapa and his successors, the Galukpa school. And Zhen Tong is, uh, was made famous by Dolpopa and then Jonang Tarnata and the Jonang school and also influenced profoundly many Nyingma and Kagyu and Sakya teachers. Um, which is why the next thing we should read really is uh, Mipam has the, the text by Mipam, the lines or of other emptiness of gentle that I've mentioned before. And third, the view that the element is impermanent and, un, and uncompounded. I'm sorry, and compounded. So just a very, uh, a really unsophisticated way of viewing the element, the Buddha nature. A refutation of the view that the Buddha element is not empty. So he's now talking to the those who have a, a incorrect understanding of Zhentong. A refutation based on scripture regarding the first of these ideas, namely that the Buddha element is not empty. We find in the following text, we find the following from the uh, Noble Lanka Avatara Sutra, which I mentioned earlier as having this presenting this archaic scheme of there being five classes of beings. The Bodhisattva Mahamati, he's the main uh, character in this sutra, addressed the Lord. He, he like asks the, the Buddha 50, I think it's like 51 questions or something. Not shades of anything, but 51 questions. Um, Address the Lord, the Blessed One, and ask the Buddha has said in the Sutra that the Sugatagarbha, which abides within the sheath of impurity, is permanent, firm, and unchanging. Permanent, firm, uh, sort of um, stable, and unchanging. How then is this different from the self? And the translators put in Purusha which is the Sanskrit, is, is one of two Sanskrit terms that could be referred to by the English term self. Either Atman or Purusha. And so presumably, the, they're, they're translating from Tibetan. It's, uh, presumably, the Tibetan term that Mipam uses implies Purusha, which is the self in the Samkhya scheme of of things. Um, how then is this different from the self proclaimed by the Tirtakas? If you say that the Buddha nature is permanent, firm, and unchanging, which is just what the Samkhya school says about the Purusha, which is the ultimate person or selfness. For they speak of a self or Purusha that is devoid of the qualities or gunas. So their scheme is that there's two things in the world. There's the Purusha, which is pure, it's the sort of ethereal, and then there's uh, gunas. And the gunas are uh, different qualities. There's three main qualities that everything else is a combination of. There's rajas, uh, I can't remember the Sanskrit, but it's like desire, ignorance, and aggression, or something that's similar to that, but it's like elemental 
characterizations of them, fire and heat, and I don't know. Uh, the Lord, the Blessed One, replied, they are not the same. The Buddha taught the Sugata Garb in terms of the three doors of perfect liberation. <clears throat> if you remember your three doors of perfect liberation, they are emptiness, signlessness, and wishlessness. That all phenomena are the, these. Uh, sorry, these are uh, three ways that the understanding of the nature of reality is accessed. So they're called the doors of liberation, the gateways to liberation. Is either the third one? Sorry, it's called it's called wishlessness, like uh, without anticipation, without expectation. So there are three ways of accessing the true nature of pursuing enlightenment. One is by understanding the empty nature of phenomena. The other is by understanding um, that. It, uh, the um, the appearing nature of phenomena, basically, as uh, in in a certain way, as being beyond the main um, aspect of appearance, which is that all appearance has characteristics by which it appears. And the third one is uh, accessing enlightenment by overcoming uh, desire wanting anything it's in the footnote ah thank you you rock but you said it better i like the way you said it there you go thank you of nirvana and of the unborn nature in order not to alarm the childish who fear the absence of self and so he's talking to he's, he's actually referring to the lotus sutra where the buddha once once all the children once uh, in the analogy all the children come outside and uh, to play with these cool toys he says he, he gives them all these toys and then he says look see what what was going on there that's why i got you to come out of the house these these are just toys really i have a maserati down the road there and the Maserati, obviously, is complete Buddhahood, right? And so he's saying, for childish beings, I present this, this notion of there being an actual samsara, an actual nirvana. Um, but in order not to alarm the childish who fear the absence of self. Uh, so this is, this is talking about beings who are even afraid of selflessness. And the Shravakas um, clearly have overcome that fear. They taught an approach to the Sugata Garbha, meaning speaking of it as if as of it as something beyond ordinary thought, the sphere beyond appearance. Regarding this, O Mahamati, the Bodhisattvas, the great beings of the future, as well as of the present time, should not fixate on it as though it were a self. Indeed, there is no liberation for those who entertain an idea of real existence. And you'll, you'll maybe have seen, or maybe you will see, references to the Buddha nature, putting, putting the Buddha nature teaching down, saying, oh, that's a provisional teaching for beings who, who can't deal with emptiness. They're afraid of emptiness. And so they have to be led onto the path and along the paths with this idea that there's a, a, a Buddha nature within them. So they disparage the Buddha nature te teaching. The sutra also says, if this essence does not empty by nature, 
So he's saying, if this Buddha nature is not empty by nature, then even if you say that it is empty of something other than itself, this does not count as its emptiness. So it's, it's eliminating a clunky way of understanding other emptiness, which is other emptiness could be understood to, to refer to saying, well, things are empty of of defilements but they're not empty of me of self you know of the seven kinds of emptiness that's cool the seven kinds of emptiness i wonder i don't remember what those are but the least is that of a thing's emptiness of something else it's like you know this glass is empty of water when it's when i after i drink it sort of thing that's like totally you know not what we're talking about among the myriad other assertions they made about it the buddhas say that this should be discarded furthermore a mahamati the tathagatagarbha is not permanent nor is he impermanent it's beyond the the extremes all extremes and the reason for saying this is that there are faults in both of these alternatives so he's saying, like the Tathagata, to say that the Buddha nature is impermanent or permanent. Both are false, are faulty. And in the same sutra, these ideas are, are upheld by demons. These, these faulty are ideas. Those who uphold these faulty ideas are demons. Existence, non-existence, both should be transcended. And if there is something higher than the supreme state of nirvana, this too is like a dream and an illusion. Because there's nothing higher than nirvana. Now we have a refutation based on reasoning. So first there was a refutation based on scripture, referring to the Buddha's statements. In accordance with the meaning of these and other scriptures, and thanks to the crucial point that the Sugha Dagarbha is by nature empty, Logical analysis shows that it is appropriate for the same Sugha Dagarbha to be the nature of the mind. It shows, too, that it pervades all objects, that it is permanent for as long as time lasts, that it is inconceivable, and that it arises in partiality as all qualities. Um, by contrast, it is altogether impossible for a Sugha Dagarbha that is not empty and exists truly to be the nature of other things. Because the Tathagata Dagarbha or the Sugha Dagarbha is empty, therefore it is the nature of everything. If it were not empty, it could not be the nature of other things. It would be the nature of it alone. Neither could a truly existing Sugha Dagarbha be the outcome of the kind of reasoning that investigates the ultimate. There, you know, so a truly existent Tathagata Dagarbha is, is an extreme that's mistaken. Uh, for something um, established as both one and truly existent, to be the result of an investigation that establishes all phenomena as devoid of true existence is as contradictory as light and dark. Ultimate valid cognition establishes all phenomena as empty. So it can't possibly establish anything, even Tathagatagarbha, as not empty. But neither is true existence established by conventional valid cognition. 
conventional valid cognition doesn't establish true um, true existence. It establishes the conventional nature of phenomena. For even though from the latter's point of view things seem to be truly established, it can never be shown that these same things are not empty. An argument to establish the existence of something that cannot be established by either of the two investigations, conventional and ultimate valid cognition, is as unreal as a flower growing in the sky. It is a meaningless waste of energy. Can I ask one question related to the first paragraph of that section? Yeah, for sure, please. I was just curious the, when it says that it is permanent for as long as time lasts. So from an ultimate point of view, time doesn't exist, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm just, just curious what that actually meant. It seems like it either would mean at the point that all beings become Buddhas, then it would become... Yeah, as soon as, whenever, whenever time does not, whenever there's no time, it, it doesn't, it's not there. It would no longer be permanent because the concept of time would be irrelevant or something. I don't know. Something like that. Yeah, it's, it is an odd phrase. It's sort of an odd thing to say. It is permanent for as long as time lasts. More commonly, it's sort of like it is, it is permanent for as long as it is round, for as long as it is. I don't know. Yeah, just wanted to see if you had any thoughts. Thank you. That's quite a takeoff. <laughs> that sounds so funny for the rest of us. I don't know if it if it sounds quite like that that way to you, Cynthia. But wow, what a neighborhood, huh? You were on a rocket ship and you and you clarified that point for us, and you just like. Phew. I'm, I'm not sure I'm understanding. She didn't even hear it. It's all background in Brooklyn. She didn't even yeah, oh, hear oh, okay. You're just talking about the background noise. There's a lot of it. Yeah. Somehow, you know, I think what what happens is like, for one, you're so used to it, but somehow it's like there's you're hearing other background noise as well. And for us, it was like just that came through, and it was very loud and prominent. And it sort of made this very uh, profound exclamation point to your statement. Very sorry. I can't do anything about no, it. That was great. <laughs> it was very skillful. Good timing. Yeah, right. I, I coordinate all of that. Uh, right. Phenomena is under your control. Yeah, it is. it is definitely an odd statement. Noted. Thank you. So on that point, on that note, we should pause for this evening and uh, continue there from next week. Any other comments or questions or whatever? I have a question. Yeah. Um, Dharma Ta and Dharma Datu, can I think of those as essentially synonymous with one another? Yeah, he mentioned that before, and I sort of glossed over it, and it's an interesting uh, point is uh, Dharma Datu is the realm of Dharma and Dharma Ta is the quality of all things as being of of some nature, you know, 
um, the ta is like shunyata. It's like a thing. It's like a ness, you know, dharma ness or emptiness. And dharma ta is, uh, it's sort of like, you know, there's the three realms and then there's, those are sort of all illusory and really there's just dharma datu. There's just the realm of dharma ta, of the way things are. And the significance or the implication, I think, is that is that we don't realize that we all only exist in Dharma Dhatu to the extent that anything exists, unless we understand Dharma Ta. And if we don't understand Dharma Ta, then we exist in the three realms of, uh, that we went through of samsara. So um, it's like it's almost like container and contained. Dharma Dhatu is container. And Dharmata is the contained. So, uh, in in the Dharmadhatu, in the space called Dharmadhatu, is only Dharmata. And um, from the ultimate point of view, everything is Dharmata. So everything is within Dharmadhatu. But from the sentient beings' point of view, there's these other, there's these three realms. Um, and then we have uh, Dharmakaya, you know, and so Dharmakaya is the uh, aspect of an enlightened being that is um, sort of most like the nature of Dharmata. And then, you know, so then it's like we should ask, well, what about the Sambhogakaya and the Nirmanakaya? Have they left the Dharmadhatu? Are they not Dharmata? And it's sort of similar to this whole way of understanding Sugata or Tathagata Garba of like, well, they seem to be different, but they're not really, you know. And and over again, there's over and over again, there's these different schemes, which all bo seem to boil down to this one fundamental idea that when you look at things from the point of view of a Buddha, from the enlightened point of view, there's no differentiation between these things. But when you look from a sentient being's point of view, there is this differentiation. And um, the sentient being's point of view is not the correct point of view, and yet it's there. It's, it's sort of not there and there at the same time. It's not really, it's not, it's not not empty, it's empty. And yet we experience it. And it's sort of like this conundrum of like, so why are we not enlightened? Which is sort of what this all is getting about. You know, if we if we all have Buddha nature in all its glory, all it's pumped up to be like right now, then why are we not enlightened? And that's what they're struggling with. But thank you for that. Anything else? Iswar, good to see you, man. I love your background. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there isn't much there. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like one of those uh, uh, digitally created backgrounds. That's neat. Uh, no, it's just a wall. <laughs> it's just a white wall. <laughs> There's nothing there. It's the Dharmadatu. There's nothing there. <laughs> so we're going to finish next class? I, I hope so. We're close, right? 174 to, out of 187. Yeah, we're, we're dang close. I think we'll get there. 189, yeah. I think it's doable.
So let's do that for next Tuesday. So let's uh, dedicate the merit. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of Erigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Thank you, nice Derek. Thank you, Thanks. Derek. Bye. Bye, Barbara and Eric. We didn't see Thank you. you. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>